listen to God's word this morning. I was uh, in the office on, on Wednesday when game day came into town. How many of you got to get out and watch game day come in? Anybody? Just a few? If I, okay, so for those of you who didn't get to see it, it literally, I mean, I went right back to the New Testament where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and everybody is shouting and waving, Hosanna, Hosanna, our God saves. And they're waving. we have flags going and I'm like, dang, for, for four commentators, okay, commentators, just plain potatoes, and we're waving flags for him. It was amazing. So I'm kind of thinking man, we should be doing this for Jesus a little more. Anyway, uh, I get a little juiced about Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind to the best of my ability. And I am loving God with all kinds of doubts. And so this morning, we're going to look at his word and uh, come to it with all of our doubts. We're going to come to it with all of our heart. We're going to come to it with all of our strength. We're going to come to it critically. We're going to come to it with an open mind as well. And we're going to listen to Jesus. So I just want to start with a quick word of prayer. So God, I pray that you would um, open us up to you. God, when we point the finger of accusation and say they are a closed-minded people, we have four more pointing back at us. And so, God, we know that we do come with our own lenses and our own ideas, our own stories, our own shame, our own guilt that we bring to the text. And, God, I pray this morning that those things would be removed, that we'd be able to hear from you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Thank you, buddy. Isaac delivered me some tea because there was a long line at the tea line. Man. Yeah, long lines at T, that's a, that's a good sign, right? It means excitement things. Okay, we're going to jump right into this because I've got a lot to share and God kept putting things in my heart and I got so excited about this that I just, I was just like, I could speak for two hours, I think, and I'm not going to because you were up really late partying and celebrating the Cougs and I want to get you guys home so you can rest for your week, but having heard from God because that is the most important thing we do. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 4 and if you've got a blue Bible in the pew around you, they're going to be in there. It's going to be on page 2 right at the very beginning and I know some of you are already going, Genesis, he always goes back to Genesis and I want you to know that that is absolutely not true because I never always do anything. I'm just not that consistent. I most of the time come back to Genesis, but never always. Always and never, you guys know those words? Those are like, we throw those around in our relationships. They're called relationship killers. So like, let's try to eliminate them as much as possible from our vocabulary. I was going to say diet, but from our vocabulary, always and never, because um, it's just not true. Nobody's that consistent. So Genesis chapter four, even though I'm generally that consistent. And uh, the other thing that I generally am really consistent, I try to get close to is to bring Jesus into it. And we're going to do that too. So Genesis chapter 4. Here's what happened. Adam and Eve put into the garden. Everything was made. It was beautiful, lovely. God said it's good, right? Then Adam and Eve, they sinned. They chose their way versus God's way, and they were released from the garden. They were kicked out. Now Adam has been working his own garden, clearing weeds, clearing brambles. He's been cut up, tore up. He's sweating, and that's how he has to feed his family, by the sweat of his brow. Then Eve, she's got, I don't know, I think she's got the worst end of the stick, honestly, on this one. She has to give birth to children through pain, is what it says. Birth is a painful experience, right? Women that have had children, it's a very painful experience. Now, imagine this. You are having a child for the first time in your life, and for the first time in world history. You have no clue what's going down. You just know the baby's going down, and it's a lot of pain right? When we do it at the hospital, there's people there and they're like, it's going to be okay. This is how it happens. You watch that crazy video in middle school, middle school, you guys seen that thing? Just, okay. If you haven't seen it yet, just do this. 
la, 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 la. You don't want to see. It's just not good. And we have these babies. And so Eve has had this two children now. Two children for the first time in the history of the world were birthed in pain. And now they are growing up. And just like sin comes into Adam and Eve, just like sin comes into the cosmos through the whole world, the universe through Adam and Eve, it also went right into their kids. And now those kids have grown up and they have become jealous of one another. And they begin to argue and to fight. And that's where we're at in Genesis chapter 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And I want to look just at one verse, verse 7. See, sin has gotten so deep into one of these two boys that he is ready to murder the other. Literally, to kill his own brother. First children in the world. Like, we look back at people, you know, you guys have people that you look up to as good parents? Anybody? Anybody awake? Is anybody with me today? We look at parents and we think, oh, those are good parents. Because we see great kids. We don't see very good parents here with Adam and Eve. They needed the GIST class, right? They needed to take the GIST conference because their kids are clearly not life ready. And they've grown up and they're really upset with one another. And God comes to this man named Cain, Adam's son, and he says this to him in verse 7. So you can read it with me on page 2. It says this, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So in the midst of this story, sin entering the world, sin driving Cain to the point where he's ready to murder somebody, God intervenes and comes to him before he does it. And he says to him, sin is crouching at your door. It's right there. You haven't done it yet. You haven't pulled the knife. You haven't got the big rock, however he was going to kill him. You haven't done it yet. Its desire is for you. And then he says, you must rule over it. Now, this is a really important passage in the Bible because right at the outset of the whole story of creation, our story, God, first of all, intervenes. But second of all, he says something really important to us. In fact, uh, one author said that this may be the most important Hebrew word in the whole Bible. It's called timshel. It's going to come up right here, timshel. And it means this, you may or you may not. The word here is translated as you must. And there's this sense of God, there's a command behind it. But it's more like he's saying, you may. You may, not a should, it's not a should, you may. You may overcome this sin. But with that word, you may, there's this implication of, but you might not. You might not. At the very outset of our story, we are given choices about what we will do with our lives. At every moment, God is coming to you and saying, Tim Shell, you may. You may not. You might do it, but you might not. Have you ever noticed how often we get cut up in our lives and we think we don't really have a choice about how we act? We get caught into addictions and we go to that, that one thing and we're like, I don't really have a choice of what I'm going to do about this. I'm just driven by something inside of me that I can't understand. I was abused as a kid or grandpa was an alcoholic. or what? We look backwards and we see all of these things in our story driving us toward this one action and we keep coming at it. And I can't help it. I don't want to help it. And, and God is looking at you and saying, hey, Tim Shell, you might. You might be able to do something about this. You can have a choice. You can change your experience. You can, despite your past, despite your pain, despite your hurt, despite what dad had handed you, even if it was Adam and Eve, despite what was handed to you, can live differently. Tim Shell, 
or you may not. The choice is up to you. You may or you may not. And the question that God is asking us in this is, what will you do with your life? What will you do with your life? Tim Shell. So now, as promised, I said I'd like to start in Genesis. I've set, like, this is the beginning of the story, right? Now you're set in what's going on in God's creation story. Now let's come to Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to tell you that that is on page 485 in your blue Bible. And I'm going to go there and we'll see who gets there first. Ready, set, go. Matthew 25. Nice. I wish I should bring prizes. Should we bring prizes for getting to the Bible passage? You might, some of you are like, I'm just going to Google search that sucker. You know, but you get there quicker. Google's great, but we want you to know the whole story of the Bible. So keep pressing into using those books. I know the pages that the print is really small. So if you need to get a large print Bible, go for it. I encourage you to get your own large print Bible because they're expensive. Um, Anyway, I looked just this last week. Somebody goes, those words are so small. I can't read the darn things. She just throws the Bible and I'm like, uh, okay. Um, So yeah, I get it. They're small. I've got good eyes, whatever. Um, So now as promised, we're going to come to Jesus. And I really like Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but we're going to look at one of Jesus's parables. And when Jesus tells a parable, I want you to notice they're not meant to be read. The parables were never meant to be read. When, when this stuff was all happening, it was just happening. He's just talking. He's just telling a story. He's just sharing it with his friends. And then eventually somebody wrote it down so that people could have it. And like this is the greatest, this is the big thing of the Reformation around 1500 when they printed the, the printing press. They put God's word in everybody's hands. But before that, it wasn't meant for our hands. It was meant for our heads and our hearts. So when we read these things, we want to, often we come to them, we're like, I'm going to tear that sucker apart. I'm going to pick, I'm gonna, it's the frog. Remember the frog? We dissect the frog. We know the frog, but at the end, the frog's still dead. Parables aren't meant to be that way. They're meant to be lived in. We're supposed to put ourselves in there. So as we read it this morning, I want you to place yourselves in it, okay? And as we go through this parable, I also want to connect some dots for you between depression, anxiety, parenting class next weekend, the conferences that are happening, the things that God has led us to, and this passage and what God's doing in you. Are you prepared for that? I hope so. You're going to have to hold on because we're going to get there. Here we go. So rather than just reading this from this text, uh, I'm going to start from the text, but I'm going to just tell you the story. And you can look at it and read along with it, but it's right here in Matthew chapter 25, verses... Where did... Oh, there we go. I'm just looking at 26. I'm like, where'd it go? 25, verses 14 through 30, okay? And here's how it starts. It says, there was a rich man. This is Jesus telling a story. There was a rich man who was going on a journey. So he called his servant and he entr- his servants and entrusted to them his property. Okay, note right away. He called his servants, all of them, and he gave them his property, all of it. Everybody got something. And the text says that this man gave a number, a specific number of talents to each man according to their ability. Now the word talent in the Greek, like, man, you're like, dang, you're like hitting all the buttons for your sermons, Jamie. You got, you got Genesis, you got Jesus, you got Hebrew, and you got Greek, and it's like eight minutes in. Anybody want to give me a hand on this? I mean, like, this is a miracle sermon happening right here. So we're into the Greek. Now the word talent in Greek is not just like a gift or a skill, which is often how we hear this has taught to us, a gift or a skill. The word talent in the Greek literally means the most 
oh boy, I can't, I'm dumb, I can't even say it. I'm going to have it up here in a second. It's the largest denomination, the largest word for money in the Greek language. It's like a billion dollars. Okay, it's like, it's like the best, closest thing we can come to. Like a billion dollars. It's all the money that you can possibly imagine. It's, it's, it's not just like $5 or $10 or one gold coin. He's like, this is the largest amount of money that I can give a person. And I'm giving the first servant five times that amount. Five billion dollars. And the second servant, he brings in and he gives him two talents. Two billion dollars. And the third servant comes in, and this is the guy that's, you know, the least skilled, the least capable of all of his servants. And he says, here you go. One billion dollars. There it is. Well-timed. He got it. A billion dollars he gives to this third servant. He hands him the money, and he said, just pushes it across his desk. Here you go. Billions of dollars for each of you. I said five, tw- uh, tw- two, uh, five two, and one, but even better would be 50, 20, and 10. $50 billion, $20 billion, $10 billion. We're talking about fabulous, extravagant, overwhelming, mind-blowing wealth. None of us in this room will see this kind of money in our lifetime, right? You could take every dollar you earned since you were a baby and pile it all together in one space until the day you die, and you're not going to have a billion dollars, likely. Except for Doug. He's been hiding it under his mattress, and he might have it. But most of the rest of us will never have this kind of money. And this rich man takes all of his wealth, and he hands it to all of his servants. Billions of dollars. It's a big check. It's immeasurably, it's of immeasurable worth. It's everything that he has. And he gives it to him and he walks away. And you'll notice that it's all grace. Every bit of it is grace. Even to the man who was least capable, he gave an enormous gift. Ten billion dollars he handed to him. This is the story of salvation in one little passage. One little story. The rich man comes from heaven and he gives his life to all of his servants and it is of immeasurable wealth. We each have been given the wealth of God, all of us. Not a single one of us in this room is poor in God's eyes. And it is all grace. It is all grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But he gave himself away, right? We just sang that over and over again on purpose so it gets in your head and in your heart. And so I could reference it in my sermon because, you know, it's good to sermons and songs. So now the master leaves. And as soon as he leaves, the servants get to it. It's their job to get to work. The first two go out and they invest that money. They put it to work. The third does something unthinkable. He buries it in the backyard. I can imagine the three of them standing there and they're like, what are you guys going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? I'm going to go talk to the bank manager. I'm going to go talk to this other bank manager. I think they could do pretty great. What are you going to do? Dig a hole. I'm going to dig a hole. Now, like four people in the room got the reference to a little play my daughter was in, and that was in there. It was really cute. Anyway, dig a hole. I'm going to dig a hole. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to put this sucker in a hole. And so he does. They each they put the money to work, or they dig a hole, and they go out, and then the master comes back sometime later. And he comes to his house, and he says, hey, bring all the servants back in. We're going to get the money back, and we're going to see what's happened with it. So the first servant comes in. He says, you gave me $50 billion to manage. And guess what I did? I put it to work 
And here, my friend, is a hundred billion dollars. I doubled it. And can you imagine how the manager's feeling right about, the, the owner is feeling right about now? The rich man is feeling like, you just doubled my net worth, my friend, from 50 to 100 billion dollars. And he says, good, good job, well done. The second guy comes in, he says, you gave me 20 billion dollars. It's an unbelievable amount of money, thank you. And I put it to work, and here's what I did. We doubled it again. So here's 40 billion dollars. Now, the rich man is worth $140 billion. He just passed, like, Paul Allen and Bill Gates. He's the richest man in the world. And the third man, he comes in, and he's wiping the dust off his pants and getting the dirt off his shirt, and he's got the bag, and he's getting the dirt off, and he sets it in front of the master, and the master says, what's this? And he says, you gave me $10 billion. Here it is. It's back. I didn't lose a penny of it. Not a cent. It is all in there. Count it. Go ahead. Now, if I handed you $10 billion, Jamie Hawes, and you came back to me with $10 billion, I'd be like, dude, you didn't screw it up. Thanks. You know, thanks for holding on to this. You didn't like buy Florida or something that's going to eventually just turn into ocean floor, right? The best scuba diving in the world is going to be Florida in a few years. It, you didn't invest in swampland someplace. You didn't, you didn't go to QVC or the Home Shopping Network and buy everything. On the, you gave me back $10 billion. I'd be really happy. But the response here is just, it's unimaginable. It's so different than what I would do. This is where, this is where the whole parable turns, where it gets flipped on its head. And here's what it says. To the first two, the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over little. Imagine how, how wealthy he is. You've been faithful over a little. $50 billion, just a little. You've been faithful over that. Now I will set you over much. Enter into my joy, he says in verse 23. And the third servant comes in, brushing the dirt off, and he says, master, I know that you are hard and have high standards and you hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you. So I found a good hiding place, and I secured money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. But the master is furious. He says, take this $10 billion and give it to the first servant. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than least? That's from the message translation. The least you could have done was to invest that sum with bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little bit of interest. Now, if that happened today, you'd have gotten like, what, an eighth of a percent or something like that? Little itty bitty. But even that, he's saying he would have been happy with. And here's what he says to that servant. So he takes the money away from it, and he says, throw this play-it-safe servant out into the darkness. Let's talk about this text for a minute. Let's talk about this story. First thing that Jesus wants to point out to you and to me because he is standing around talking to believers. He's in the synagogue. He's got his disciples around him. He's got the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. These are people who think they're in. These are all the people who love God and are worshiping him. Now, the Pharisees, they've got some things goofy and wrong, and Jesus is always knuckling-headed against them, but he loves them because he knows they love God. So these are the people that are in he's talking to, and he says to them, you guys are in this story. You are the people that God has given this fabulous wealth to. You in this room this morning are gifted. And some of you are thinking, okay, maybe. And some of you are thinking, no way, Jose. You are gifted. You have been given natural gifts 
abilities, things that you are good at. And guess what? It was given to you. Just pushed across the desk and handed to you. If you are in business and you have the ability to generate money and income as a business, that's a gift. It's a gift I don't have. I'm terrible at generating money other than just by working and getting a paycheck. If you, if you play music, it's a gift. It was given to you. You had to work at it, but you had, it was given to you. It was a gift. If you create art or tapestry or you paint, it's a gift. It was given to you. If you math, that is a verb. If you math and are good at mathing, and you can put together chemical equations and formulas, if you can make numbers add up and be right in the end, it's a gift. Also, I don't have. And it was given to you by God. If you can stand up and walk, it's a gift given to you by God. If you can think, it is a gift that was given to you by God. Any spiritual gift you operate in was given to you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It was given to you, whether it's a gift to serve people or to teach or to pray or to heal people. If you prophesy over people, maybe you have the gift of administration. Again, you're not a gift I work under real often, so I'm so thankful for Heidi and Casey who keep me in organization and keep me moving. The gift of, of administration is enormous, but it's a gift. Maybe it's to pastor people or to share Christ. It's not just your natural abilities that you have been given, but your spiritual gifts as well. And it's also your failures and mistakes. Every experience of your life from birth to this day has been a gift from God. Fabulous wealth. Overwhelming, unimaginable wealth. You were born into a moment of time at a particular place to a particular set of parents in a particular family in a particular way And that was entrusted to you by God. Do you hear me? It was entrusted to you. It's a gift. God says, here it is. Some of you are going, but it was ugly. It was bad. Even the difficulties, the pains, and the setbacks that you've experienced in life have all made you who you are this day. And it is that person that God loves deeply and desperately. With all of your hurt, all of your pain, all of your addiction, all of your rejection, every bit of it is a gift from God. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it, but it is a gift. We sit here, all of us, fabulously wealthy, entrusted with insane amounts of wealth, bags of gifts from God bags of it. 50 billion, 20 billion, 10 billion. Jesus is pointing to the lavishness of God's love for you and for me, for all of his people. And it doesn't like, like just some of his servants got it. The three best servants got the gifts. It says all of his servants were brought together. All of them were gifted. All of them. He's trying to communicate the enormous wealth being given to his servants. All of them. That's you. Now, did you notice the tension in the parable? Notice tension whenever you're reading a story or the Bible, when you're reading along and things, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought it was supposed to be this way, and it went that way. The tension tells the point. And the tension is not in how gifted the servants were. It's not in how much each of them got. The tension is in what the servants choose to do with it. Hold on to that word, Tim Shell. You may or you may not. You see, Jesus wants us to do something with the gift 
that he has given us. Jesus didn't come just to save our butts from hell and get us into heaven, right? Jesus isn't concerned about the attendance around the throne of God. He's got everything he needs. He loves us, and he wants us to know him and to be with him, but God comes to save us and to send us out. God comes to gift us and then to put us into the world to be a gift. He saves us to move us out as servants to give back to the world. The first two, they double what was entrusted to them. They put it to work. But the third, he buries it. Now, if I give a guy $10 million again and he doesn't lose it, I'm happy. But God, he's like, you throw this wicked, lazy servant out into outer darkness. He missed the whole point. He played it safe. And that is the whole point of this parable. You've been fabulously gifted by God. And if you don't put it to work and put it out into the world to serve people, you've wasted it. The servant just doesn't get who God is. He says, I thought you were a hard man. I thought you were difficult and that you'd be upset if I used this. He even calls him, he says, Lord and master. He's a Christian. He says, Jesus, you're master. You're my Lord. But he buries his gift. And he says, I was afraid, so I hid it. Does that sound familiar to you? Genesis chapter 1. Adam, where are you? Adam, where have you gone? I was naked, and I was afraid, so I hid. We're hiders. We're not seekers. We're hiders. It's our natural bent to hide things. We're given this treasure, and we're meant to value it. We're meant to go, oh my gosh, look at the gift of my life. Look at the gift of my talents. Look at the gift of my abilities, my spiritual gifts, my natural gifts. Look at what I have. And to value it and then to put it to work. Have you ever noticed that every time, and you may not have, but you look, check this out. Like, go home this week and check it out. Every time Jesus ever talks about hell, he's not talking to the random person on the street. He's not pulling the prostitutes aside and saying, hey, look, ladies, you keep this up? You're all going to hell. He doesn't come out on the, preach, the, the, the street corner with his sign that says turn or burn and start screaming at people that you're all going to hell if you don't turn and come back to, to, to me. You know, Jesus isn't me or God. He doesn't shout at people. Every time he talks about hell, he is talking to Christians. He is talking to people on the inside. He is talking to believers. He is saying, you're asleep. Wake up. He's saying, you have been gifted and you're wasting it those are the people that Jesus winds up sending to hell in his stories. Christians, not non-believers. And it's meant to shock us. And I hope you're a little bit shocked. Knowing your treasure, valuing those things, and using them to serve others, Jesus says is the most important decision you'll ever make. In your life as a follower of Jesus, he said, I choose to follow him. From that point forward, the most important decision you will ever make is what you do with what you've been given. So in other words, what are you doing with the treasure of your life? The story of our conferences illustrates, um, I think in some ways, this, this question. Um, Heidi and I, for some time now, like not in these words, have felt like God's been asking us this question. What are you going to do with the treasure you have? 
we look around and it's easy for us to see scarcity. We live from a, a place of scarcity, right? As a people, we're like, I don't have enough money to go on this. Or I don't have uh, these resources or these talents or these skills, so I can't make that happen. And God has been asking us like, okay, so what are you going to do with what you have? And in the midst of a sermon about a year ago, when I was feeling very down, very low, actually the word that Heidi and I have been using for this is that we were in mourning. We were mourning the loss of good friends. We were mourning, if you were with us at that time, Chris and Kristen moving away and Jandy moving away and this crew of people that loved Jesus with their whole heart and we were working together and we're like, God has taken this someplace and it was like the rug was pulled out from under us and we were, we were just mourning and sad and I was preaching this sermon in the midst of that sermon, the Lord laid on my heart to say, don't give up. And I think at that point, it was more for me than it was for you to be really honest, but many of you kind of sat up in your chairs. You sat up in your seats. You moved your legs a little bit. Don't give up. And I said it again. And the Holy Spirit was just prompting me, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. And that week, I found those signs. And I, within a, a week after that, we were, had like a couple weeks after that, we were putting signs out in people's yards. And then Tyler Helinski took his life. And we were out here saying, don't give up. You matter. Your life matters. We're saying what Jesus has said. You're fabulously gifted. You're a gift to this world. We, mat- we care about you. You matter. And that began to spin into this dream to do a conference for teen depression and anxiety. And this summer, Heidi and I were like, what else are we going to do this fall? What are we going to do with what we have? She says, let's do a parenting class. We've never done a parenting class before. Let's do a parenting class. Okay, so we go, we're like, what are we going to do? Just, we get this great book. It is a fabulous book. Let's see if there's a small group curriculum for it. So I go online, I'm like, there's a small group curriculum, can't find anything, find the book's website, says contact us. So I send an email, hey, is there a small group curriculum for this? Lo and behold, the next day, the author of the book emails me back and says, no, there's no small group curriculum for it yet. It's in the process, so keep your eyes out for it. And I thought, hey, we're in a cool small town full of college students and professors who like to correct things. I emailed back, hey, if you'd like to beta test that thing, we've got people here that would love to tear it apart and give you feedback. And he emails back, he goes, I'll do one better. If you'll do that, I'll come out and speak at your church. And we could do a conference for people on parenting. And I email back, I'm like, hey, parenting conference would be great, but what do you think about depression and anxiety? And he says, I would love to talk about depression and anxiety. And he says, I'd also love to find a way to talk to young people. Can I talk to young people at your church? And then our next thing you know, we have got two conferences that people are throwing money at us to do. Radio stations here in town threw $3,000 at us that have been on the radio for the last week and a half. You guys got to turn on the radio. I don't know which stations it's on, Inland Northwest Broadcasting, whichever one that is. There's on there, depression and anxiety, just parenting. We've been getting calls from churches and from schools. The school district has blasted it out to every family in, this, in the schools. Every family that gets uh, extra food at the end of the week got a flyer this week, and boy, that ticked some people off. But people were so behind it, the leadership wanted to get it into people's hands. We took what little we had, and we are so far into this, Heidi and I are like, what are we doing? <laughs> I don't know how to handle this. We get like, we're learning things we've never had to do before. We just took this little bit that we had. We had one little word, don't give up. And we began to put our talents and our gifts, and we began to pull people together like Jeff and Angie Fierstein and Richard, who we didn't even know how badly we needed Richard on this thing. And he's throwing his gifts and skills in there, and it's just, it's blossoming, and it's flowering, and it's not my thing, it's this church's thing. This is your ministry to this city. It is. 
poof. It didn't happen because Heidi and I are amazing. It didn't happen because we had a good idea. It didn't happen because we were sitting around and plotting and planning and organizing. It happened because the Holy Spirit prompted us and a few people decided to take what God had given him and to put it in and to see what would happen. And that is the invitation of this passage for your life. What will you do with the treasure you have? Your life matters more than you could ever imagine. You're not just a Christian. You're not just a janitor. You're not just a businessman. You are a child of God who is gifted beyond imagination, and you are desperately needed in this world. Every one of you. You have been called to greatness. Hold on to that. You and I have been called and made and set apart for greatness. Now, don't confuse greatness with fame. I've been doing that for a long time. Greatness and fame are two different things. Greatness is something that they talked about a lot in the Middle Ages. It's a virtue. It's pursuing the best possible outcome for your life and all, using all the gifts and all the skills you have despite every obstacle, every failure, every hurt, every pain, every person saying no to you to pursue with all that you have the best possible result of your life. Fame, on the other hand, is something that belongs only to God. Fame is, is that big stage. Fame is that big name. Now, God calls some people into those places, but it's his, not ours. And we often go confusing greatness with fame. We think, if I put everything I have into this, if I work really hard, if I use every gift and every skill I have, I'm going to be awesome. My church is so My paycheck, it's going to be amazing. That album I record. Okay, I mean, these are the things, these are my things. I don't know what your fame looks like. Like Hillsong's United, they're going to be like, hey, you want to come and be our guest worship leader for us? Billy Graham, before he died, was going to invite me to give the invitation. That's fame, not greatness. Greatness is taking whatever you have and using it for God's glory to the best of your ability. God is asking you this morning to say yes to him. To say yes to him with the gifts and the talents that you have. To say yes to him with your life. And I want to take just one minute because we're coming to a close. I got just a little bit more. I want to talk about why we don't pursue greatness. Why we get caught up. I want to talk about that briefly, but I want to take a minute. I want to ask you to invite God to speak to you right this moment. For Jamie to shut up long enough for you to hear what yes God is asking you to give. And we're going to take one full minute of silence and then I'm going to start talking again. So let's do this. Jesus, would you speak to your servants right in this moment? What yes are you asking of each of us?
Jesus right now, we just want to be honest that we're going to have a list of things, a list of reasons why while we want to say yes, we're going to have to say no. While I want to say yes, we're probably going to have to say maybe, which is code for no. Maybe some other day. Jesus, I pray that you give us courage right now to face every obstacle that comes between us and our yes to you. In Jesus' name. So I got a sticker on my computer. I should have brought it up here with me. Object lesson. And the sticker says, what's stopping you? And it's from a mission, or Foursquare Missions put them out this last year. They said, what's stopping you? And they were inviting people just to share. Hey, what's stopping you from going out on the mission field? And I'm like, because I'm not called right now. Like, oh, okay, that's good enough. Yeah, that's good enough. But we've all got reasons about what's stopping us from EMSES. And here's a few of the ones, just super quick. This is what I think. Our family of origin is a big deal. Jesus may be in our hearts, but Grandpa is in our bones. Uh, there's a missionary, William Carey. Oh, hey, he's bringing it to me. Here it is, right on my daughter's water bottle. What's stopping you? Can you see it? She'll also ask you later whether that's orange or red. Um, you can have that conversation with Emma. So there's a story of this man named William Carey. Anybody familiar with William Carey from the 1800s? Mission? Hey, Janie, one person. You, you get a sticker later. Um, oh, there's another one. Mary, you can also have a sticker. I don't know what I got, but we'll find something in the kids' program stuff. Um, it'd be like a cross or Easter flower or something. Um, anyway, so William Carey was a missionary in the 1800s to India, and he felt called by God to go. He had this, like, this moment. Uh, it's a Pentecostal moment. It's, it's you kind of like, I was strangely warmed, is how uh, it's been said before. So he had this moment where God spoke to him, prompted him in his heart, you're to go to India and be a missionary. India is a crazy place in 1800. I'm telling you, it's like tribes and poverty and sickness and dysentery, and you don't want to go there if you're not been told by God to go. And he's going to go, and his dad sits him down. He comes to him and he says this, son, come into my study. And he closes the door and he says, his dad looks at him and he says, son, sit down. If God wants to save India, he'll, use, he'll do it without you. If God wants to save India, he'll do it without you. These are the same people that said if God wanted us to fly, he'd give us wings, right? Our families speak things to us, life messages. We've been told things, taught things, heard things, picked up things, heard things from other people that say we're not capable, it isn't safe. That's a big one don't take the risk. You're too messed up. You don't have the gifts or talents or skills that you need to do this. It's these words that catch up in our hearts. These voices play their siren song in our heads, and we get this idea from God, and then all of a sudden, those voices start shouting, right? Sit down. Sit down. Shut up. We don't like to say shut up at my house, but that's what my voice says. That's what that thing in my head says. Sit down and shut up. You're not needed. You're a little measly one-talent person is just not that worthwhile. You don't need it. Give it up. Others of us, we come with that one talent and we bury it because of fear. Some of us have the voices. Some of us have fear. We're perfectionists. We want it to be just right if we do something. We don't want to risk if we might look incompetent or silly or it doesn't work. I got to tell you, we fought this one. I fought this one with these conferences. What if it doesn't work? What if we spend all this money and bring this guy all the way from Arizona and nobody shows up? What if it's like church on Sunday morning? Ouch. What if it's that Sunday where nobody comes? You know, Thanksgiving week, the day after Christmas. What if that happens? I don't want to look stupid. Did you know there's a command in the Bible that appears 110 times? If it happens 
once, you're like, you should pay attention. If it happens twice, you really should pay attention, right? If you're repeating himself 110 times, guys, we need to get this into our brains. You know what that commandment is? Do not fear. 110 times, God says it to Abraham. God says it to Isaac. God says it to Jacob. God says it to Moses. God says it to Abraham. God says it to Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Mary, Joseph. He says it to Paul. He says it to Peter. And now he's saying it to you this morning. Do not fear, for I am with you. I want you to risk it. I gave you fabulous wealth. Billion dollars. Ten billion dollars. Fifty billion dollars. Use it. Risk it. As my boss says, make a mess. I'll come clean it up. Go make a mess. It's going to be fine. Jesus is with you. Lastly, if it's not the voices, if it's not the fear, you may have disqualified yourself because of your age or your life stage. Some of us are saying, hey, I'm just a single guy. What do you want from me? I don't want anything from you. Jesus wants all of you. I'm... I'm too, I'm too young. I'm 16. I'm just like, mom's still doing my laundry. What do you mean pursue greatness? Like pursue greatness means getting a good grade for me right now. Some of you are like, hey, I've got three young kids at home. How am I going to pursue greatness? I don't have time for greatness. But the thing is, you, your three kids graduate and you come out the other side and now you're 50 or 60 years old and you're like 50 or 60 years old, 70 years old. Man, pff, greatness, that's done. There's no good time to have children. There is no good time to get married. There is no good time to risk something for Jesus. It never happens. One of my uh, mentors from afar, Pete Scazzaro, he tells the story of a a mentor of his who said to him, I'm going to tell you this just one time, so write it down. The best years of your ministry life will be between 60 and 70 years old. Your second best life of ministry is going to be between 70 and 80 Because by the time you've hit 60 years old, God's worked out a lot of those kinks in your life. The rough edges have been brushed off and knocked off. You've you've got over yourself, hopefully. And if you make it long enough to get to 70 years old, between 70 and 80 is going to be golden. It's going to be fabulous. He says your third best are going to be between 50 and 60 because most of it's taken care of, but you still got some things to learn. And he's sitting there at 25 years old. And he goes, so what I'm telling you is be patient. You've got like 40 years before you're going to hit the golden days. Just be patient. Make a mess. Take risks. Try. But know that your best years are ahead of you. So if you're sitting in this room and you are over 70 years old, this is prime time for you. John Teague? Mary? Not going to... <laughs> Just say, do not, do not... It's prime time for you if you are between 50 and 70, some people in this room. And I'm happy because I got time, right? I just got to be patient and relax. Give it my best. Guys, risk for Jesus. I want to spend the rest of our time, which we're right at the end of our time. I don't want to pray for one another. We want to take the time. We've been empowering you to pray for one another, empowering you for ministry, empowering you to show up this next weekend at our conferences. You're like, hey, I wasn't going to come. I want you to go online today and buy a ticket and just be here because God may be calling you to minister to somebody in that moment, to pray for a parent who's struggling, to, to talk and build a relationship to somebody who's in depression or anxiety. Be here. 
And we want to take some time, and I just want to pray for one another, because this is how we empower you to pray, is to teach you how to do it, to pray with one other person in this room. And we're going to put up a list of how to pray up here, just a second. There it is. This is our, our, our pattern. We start with a heart check. Am I ministering out of love? Like, do I actually care about this person? And interview them. How can I pray with you, not for you? This is a together thing. And then ask them, what, what might God be doing in you through this? And then pray exactly what they asked. Bless them. Bless them. Seal it with a blessing. God, I just pray you pour out all of your strength on them. God, I pray you give them all of your courage so that they don't fear. God, I pray that your words overcome the words of the enemy in their life. Bless them. And then lastly, after you say amen, say, hey, can I follow up with you on that this week? How can I encourage you? So we're going to take like three, four minutes, um, some a minute and a half each to do this. So you've got to be succinct and quick. Share with that other person what yes God is asking you into calling you into and pray for one another. Would you do that? Let's go. Let's do that.